Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, this story was originally published in 1955 in Spanish. We read it in the English translation in the short story collection called Leaf Storm. Uh, it was translated by Gregory Rabasa. This was a story that was nominated by a Patreon supporter, and we just want to say thank you so much to our supporter who nominated this story. This was a real treat to read. It was a real treat. So thank you so much for nominating this. I will say that uh, when this supporter uh, wrote to us to to give us this nomination, what he said was, hey, everything that you guys have done so far has been a horror story in some way. How about some weird fiction that is not horror, something that is uh, fa- more fantasy than horror? And I said, yes, absolutely. We want to be doing that. Uh, so I was really grateful for this opportunity. And hopefully we'll get to do more of this uh, as we go. And of course, listeners, uh, or at least other Patreon supporters were just as excited to do this story as we were. The story won this batch of tales selected by our patrons, and it won handily. I mean, this was a real landslide. Almost every single person voted for this story. Uh, we're going to do three more stories from this ballot as well. All three of them really were, were bunched together within just one vote of each other, pretty far below this story, actually. Uh, so the next story is going to be The Gunslinger by Stephen King. Uh, we're just doing the original novella, which is now chapter one of the novel that has the same name. We'll talk more about that in that episode. Uh, And then we've got Foundation by China Mieville. And after that, we have The Return of Shirley Jackson with The Demon Lover, uh, though we're not going to get to that until January. There were stories on the ballot that did not make our episode list uh, because they lost the vote. (laughs) And the writers of those stories were (laughs) M.R. James, Missed by just one vote again. I mean, we are just not going to end up covering MR James again on this podcast. <laughs> no more fun, cozy ghost stories or Christmas time ghost stories. Uh, but I hope we get more MR James in the future. We're going to keep all these guys on the ballot until they win, basically. Then we've got Robert Block and Roger. And Robert Aikman as writer's block, of course, famous for writing Psycho. We covered Lucy Comes to Stay, which was a which was a really fun, almost precursor uh, to Psycho. And Robert Aikman, of course, uh, a great writer of The Strange. Can't wait to get to these guys. We're keeping them on the ballot. And if you continue to not vote for them, we won't cover them. But hopefully they'll win the vote one day because I can't wait to get back to these writers. Yeah, I mean, these ballots, these are hard choices. It's it's not like we're putting things on the ballot that are, are definitely things that I wouldn't want to cover or that, uh, you know, that I wouldn't vote for. Every story that's on every ballot is something I would love to do, which is, well, that's frankly, that's why we make our Patreon supporters <laughs> do it for us, because I would have a hard time uh, selecting as well. But yeah, I mean, it's just this weird curse that Amar James has that he misses literally by one vote. I, like, I think for the last five ballots, might even be six ballots, though I have I have confidence that he's going to make the threshold uh some someday. Well, let's uh, let's get into this story, Brandon. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. On the third day of rain, they had killed so many crabs inside the house that Falayo had to cross his drenched courtyard and throw them into the sea, because the newborn child had a temperature all night, and they thought it was due to the stench. The world had been sad since Tuesday. Sea and sky were a single ash-gray thing, and the sands of the beach, which on March nights glimmered like powdered light, had become a stew of mud and rotten shellfish. So those are the uh, the opening few lines of this story. And man, what a hook. Uh, there's some awesome imagery, some beautiful language there. But we also get the, the mood of this piece. It's sad. It's drenched. Everything is muddy and rotten and feverish, even as there is new life 
coming into the world. But we haven't even gotten to the plot part of the hook yet, <laughs> which is that uh, while he is traipsing through the courtyard on his way back from the ocean, Palaio finds a very old man lying face down in the mud. And this, uh, this very old man can't get up because of his enormous wings. Uh, so there's that. There's a, a very old man with enormous wings. Right. <laughs> the title of the story found in the first paragraph. You are right to point out the imagery in here. One thing I want to point out right away um, is this reference to like powdered light. We get an image later on of like lunar dust. And these images are beautiful and ethereal and strange and numinous. Uh, and it really draws us into the fantastic elements of the story. In the discussion a little bit, we're going to be talking about magical realism as a genre, maybe as a strange cousin to weird tales or, or the strange. And we see that right in the first paragraph through the imagery, and we'll see it more throughout the story in terms of language choices, apart from the, the core subject of the story, which is a very old man with enormous wings. One thing, though, that I want to point out before we go any further is the subtitle of this story, which is A Tale for Children. And I mean, I think this is something we're going to have to think about. Is this story a fable, a fairy tale? In what way is this a tale for children? Certainly, an author would only put their intent for the reader. So on the page so nakedly, if they if they want only if they wanted the reader to put themselves in the position of a child hearing this story or to put an adult reader in the mind of a person who's reading a fable or something to read aloud to children. Um, and so this is also maybe part of the genre of children's stories, which are typically fables, which means they have a moral or an ethic to them or something that should delight a child and get them to think about the world in some way. Something I want us to keep in mind as we as we go through this story so we can be primed for the discussion. Uh, you know, in just a second, we're going to see that this very old man with enormous wings is described as a nightmare by Paleo. Uh, not only are these people dealing with a massive invasive crab infestation in their property on their house, it's like a, a spider infestation or something like that. <laughs> they have one more problem to add to their list, which is this old man who, in the description we'll get in just a moment... Uh, seems like a lifelong beggar, and his wings are, are shabby-looking, almost like a molting buzzard. And here, buzzard is interesting because imagery that we get half of buzzards is, is usually associated with scavenger-type creatures like crabs. So we're dealing with this kind of like uh, scavenger or carrion-eating imagery doubling up um, to really set the stage for Paleo and Alessandra's home life. The crabs are going to come back at the end of the story as well, right? There's there's a sense in which they're a pervasive part of the the life of Paleo and his wife, this this whole neighborhood, really. And uh, I think that's something that, yeah, we're definitely going to want to keep in mind when we we get to the discussion. So at this point, Paleo goes and gets his wife, and uh, together they inspect this very old man with enormous wings. And this is where we get this uh, this fairly thick description with the the buzzardness and and so on. And uh, Marquez tells us here that the the wife and, and her name is Elisenda. So he tells us that uh, that Elisenda had been putting a, a compress on their sick baby when Paleo came and got her. And 
I have a newborn in my house. My wife and I have a newborn baby as well. And my first response to this, my first response to Elisenda going off to the courtyard was, but who's watching the baby right now? (laughs) And seriously, it totally took me out of the story. I had a hard time getting past this first page. Uh, I know that's really just exposing all the new anxieties that I get to experience in this phase of my life. It has nothing to do with the story at all, but uh, just uh, just a new experience for me. But uh, all right. So yeah, what does this man look like? He is dressed poorly. His hair is almost gone. Uh, he doesn't have many teeth left. The wings are buzzard wings. They're, they're dirty and half-plucked and entangled in the mud. And when they speak to him, he speaks back, but it's in a strange dialect, and they think he sounds like a sailor. So they go get a neighbor, and she says, well, this is an angel, and that he uh, must have been coming for the child. But because he's so old, the, the rain was too much for him. This is a strange understanding of what angels are and also of what angels do, but there's going to be even more than that. Uh, This woman thinks that angels are the fugitive survivors of a heavenly conspiracy and that they should club him to death. So there's some uh, some Milton stuff going on here as well, I guess. Yeah, it's really strange. I want to highlight the introduction to the child in this story or the maybe importance, the important role that the child's that the child plays in the parents and like village understanding of what this very old man is. This child is sick, has a fever. Um, obviously it's not sick from the stench of crabs. It's, we don't know why the child is sick, but the fear that the child is going to die is evident. Uh, maybe through the parents own anxieties or interactions with this old village woman, the village woman, I think, picks up on that fear and capitalizes on it in order to describe what this old man with very enormous wings is. She says he's an angel. He's come to take the child. If you club him to death, maybe the child will live. And that's kind of the implication of their conversation. This is the first thing that this old man represents to the people. He he embodies the fear of the death of the infant, of the child. And this child, the child of Peleo and Elisenda, is one of two children that we see in the story, though the second child that we meet is is a full-grown woman, perhaps by the time we meet her, though her story of her childhood is very important in her uh, I don't know, development, <laughs> should we say? <laughs> well, I'll save that till we meet her. Um, and just this idea that this old man is immediately here representing fears or anxieties or desires, I think is crucial to the way this story unfolds. Well, Paleo and Elisenda are not buying this this idea that the that this very old man with enormous wings was coming for their baby. They certainly decide not to club him to death. Uh, what they do, though, is put him in the chicken coop, uh, and then they watch over him. And the baby does recover overnight. And, and maybe it's because there's an angel, or at least, you know, an old man with wings hanging around. So they want to be able to send him back to his sailor ship. But it is now too late because the, the whole neighborhood at this point has heard the news and has come to see this very old man with enormous wings and is actually feeding him through the chicken cage like he's a circus animal. And people are are putting forth all sorts of ideas about what to do with him. Uh, This includes uh, make him the mayor of the world, make him a five-star general in order to win all the wars, or to use him to breed a new race of winged wise men. Uh, I guess those are all pretty good ideas, right? If If you have to brainstorm, those are all pretty good ideas. 
Yeah, I, I think the th- the real thing to point out here is the the stark contrast between what the villagers think this you know what this captive or you know angel or whatever he is what he should be to the world what he should represent or what he what they can project onto him whether it's the general or the 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 stud to breed this new race of humans or uh, whatever it is what they want from him or want him to become or want to prop him up as is put in contrast with the fact that he is uh, being treated as a as a carnival freak uh, a sideshow attraction and it's really interesting to me to think about what that is saying about these villagers they're projecting onto him all of this greatness but they're treating him as a kind of subhuman almost um and i and i wonder what marquez is doing with that contrast at this point in the story Right, because no one ever takes any action to implement any of these plans. No one ever lets him out of the cage and says, maybe you should run for this office of mayor of the world or even just, you know, like our, uh, I don't know, our board of education or something, right? He is imprisoned uh, almost the the entire story, right? Until the very end, he's going to be imprisoned. And the the priest comes here, the the priest, uh, Father Gonzaga, and he knows that this is not really an angel. Uh, For one, this man does not know Latin, which is the language of God, but also he's too human. I mean, he's smelly. He's kind of gross. And Father Gonzaga tells the the people this, even says that this may actually be a trick of the devil, but still, you know, he does promise to make sure that the question of whether this dude is an angel or not is going to get all the way up to the Pope so that they will have a final verdict. But nobody listens to him. And by noon, the, the whole town has crowded into this courtyard to see what they think of as a fallen angel. Uh, it is a mess, and Elisenda is tired from sweeping up trash, but then it does occur to her that they could charge for admission, and people come from all over the world, uh, some of them hoping for miracle cures, uh, some just to see, and even a, a circus shows up to check out the, the competition. This circus has a flying person as well, but he's got bat wings, not bird wings, so nobody cares. This is a really fascinating touch, because apparently... This story is taking place in a world in which there are other people with wings who can fly. And so that's not the unusual thing about this very old man with enormous wings. Uh, but at any rate, none of this is good for the old man. The the hens in the, the chicken coop, they peck at him. People pluck his feathers. They throw stones at him to get him to stand up. They even burn his arm with an iron brand, which uh, makes him tear up and speak to them in his unknown language. At at this, Father Gonzaga intervenes while he still is waiting for word from the Pope, and he gives people tasks to do to to check to see if the old man really is an angel, uh, like seeing if he knows Aramaic or searching for a belly button and so on. You know, all the things you would do to determine if someone you know is an angel or not. Uh, The only thing, though, that saves the old man is the arrival of a carnival with uh, a woman who had been changed into a spider. It's cheaper to go see her, and she actually interacts with the audience, and so people start going there instead. And this is where Marquez gives us a a lot of backstory about this woman, right? This is the the child you were referring to earlier, Brandon. But her arrival does bring an end to the old man's career as a circus attraction, and that's probably good for him. Absolutely. We get this line in the story that says, the angel was the only one who took no part in his own act. Uh, and he has this the o- and the only virtue he displays is that of patience. Though we might 
use another word like long suffering or something like that <laughs> uh, because he's putting up with so much nonsense. And and we again in this story we see that people who are in search of something all see this old man as as representative of that thing. Glenn, you pointed out that his feathers are stolen by unfortunate people and crippled people in order to heal their afflictions. Uh, but no one is really making an effort to understand the old man. Uh, they're treating him like an animal to be tested upon. And as you pointed out, this extends to the church's own testing, uh, which is using a bunch of sort of Thomistic tricks to try to <laughs> understand whether or not this is an angel. The belly button thing is a reference to Adam. You know, Adam obviously would not have had a belly button because he wasn't born from a woman. Uh, there's a reference to how many... Uh, times that this person could fit on the head of a pin uh, which is a kind of joke about the scholastic approach to theology um, which gets you know in some people's minds way too in the weeds but father gonzaga isn't really doing anything to save this man to bring him into the church to give him a good life he is still okay with the winged man being kind of an outsider and and having all the attention uh, heaped on him from the crowd rather than acting with, you know, a form of Christian charity. Father Gonzaga is more interested in maybe his appeals to authority through the hierarchy of the church rather than acting out a sense of any sort of Christian virtue. Uh, you know, charity, I think, would be the main one, maybe mercy as well. And this reference that the priest has to thinking that because the man doesn't know Latin and nobody really knows his language and nobody tries to understand his language, uh, but the priest is the one who kind of thinks that Latin is the language of God. So this is because mass is done in Latin, but it's also maybe a, a limit of the priest's own understanding of what the mystery of this old man could be. <laughs> he's saying he's got it cracked. There are ways we can figure out whether or not this guy's an angel. Uh, there are testing things we can do, you know, in in the spirit of science, rather than acting kind of more on the mysteries of the church and the spiritual uh, realities that might be at place that have this room uh, that take up the space beyond that of scientific testing of the science of the scientific process. Um, there's a lot going on here. Uh, and I, and I love how efficient Marquez is with his prose, but I think we can also say that with the tarantula woman and the presence of the bat with, or, or of the acrobat with sidereal bat wings, uh, that, that magic is real in this world, but it's also has its place in, the places we'd expect to find it, which is in carnival sideshows. And I, I want to point this out about the tarantula woman. You know, the story that we get from her is essentially that she was a rebellious preteen in some sense. She went to a concert or something <laughs> like that. Uh, and she disobeys her parents. And on her way home, she's turned into a giant tarantula. And it's not just that the attraction of the villagers to the tarantula woman and also the show as an attraction is cheaper than the man with very enormous wings it's that this is a woman or a strange creature who has a simple moral to tell the crowd 
And she's our only counterpoint in this story, really, to the sideshow of the angel, this this kind of mixture of people and, and beasts. And this is what people prefer, not a mystery that they can project everything onto or uh, grapple with, but a simple lesson. They want the simple lesson, the simple fable of the tarantula woman. And as soon as they get that, everybody moves on quickly from the event of the old man showing up. And they really come up with retroactive reasons to abandon the old man. And one of them is that, like, you know, they can talk to the tarantula woman. She has language. But also the old man has miracles that don't work out the way people expect it. So they kind of are looking at cause and effect here in a very strange way. Who knows whether or not the wings of the old man or the being in the presence of the old man had any effect on these uh, people who were looking for miracle cures, you know, like a leper grew uh, sunflowers in his sores or a man who was blind grew three extra teeth. This is all blamed on the cause of the old man's miracles not really working out the way that they expect. And the saddest part for me of all of this, of everybody moving on and kind of blaming the old man for not being an interesting enough sideshow attraction is that nobody cares because Paleo and Elisenda made all the money that they need from this attraction and they don't they also don't care about the old man anymore. He was just a thing for them to use as well. So right now to me this story does not feel like your standard children's story at all. And in fact the kind of fable portion of the story that we get in the Tarantula Woman is maybe a critique of children's stories. So there's a lot that Marquez is really commenting on here. Yeah, Paleo and Elisenda, though, are going to redeem themselves a little bit here, right? The At this point, the, the business is at an end, but they had made enough money at selling these tickets to this attraction to build a new opulent house, a house that is even crab-proof. Uh, and they're able to get some luxuries as well, such as a warren for racing rabbits and some new clothes. The chicken coop is still with them and they keep the old man there, right? The old man still lives there. Uh, They can never get the smell to go away, though, no matter how much they clean it. And their baby grows up. He's a a kid now. Uh, He likes to play with the angel in the chicken coop. And they spend so much time together that they even get chicken pox at the same time. Uh, the doctor, of course, comes for the, the child, but he does examine the old man as well. And he finds that he's a perfectly normal human. It's just that he's got wings, but also that his heart and his kidneys don't sound very healthy. And eventually the, the chicken coop falls apart. The, the very old man with wings just loiters around their house. Uh, sometimes he hangs out in the bedroom, then in the kitchen and so on. And in fact, Elisenda even begins to think that he has duplicated himself because he always seems to be in whichever room she wants to be in. So now he sleeps in the shed now that the, the chicken coop is gone, but he's getting quite infirm. He has a, a temperature at night. But then when the winter is over, when spring comes, he's healthy and he has grown new feathers and he's able to fly away. And as he's doing that, Elisenda lets out a sigh of relief. She she watches him fly all the way to the horizon of the sea and she feels relief. And uh, that's the end of the story. Yeah, this sense of relief that Elisenda feels uh, at the end of the story is really bizarre to me. The old man has really brought them nothing but good fortune. You know, his presence maybe we could say has rescued the the 
child from death as an infant. He's let them rebuild their whole lives. Uh, but they get to a point in their own lives, Alessandra and uh, Paleo, where they think of him as imaginary. They prefer to think of him as not the cause of their good fortune or having anything to do with good, their good fortune. Uh, him being there reminds them that they didn't do it all themselves. They didn't build everything themselves and make their own fortune out of their own hard work and ingenuity and whatever. His presence uh, very quickly becomes to represent the fact that he is the cause of their good fortune and it becomes a kind of thorn in their side as as industrious people. <laughs> and it's a kind of a great bit at the end of the story. I want to point out the child's relationship with the old man before we move into our discussion as well, because it's it's not your standard childhood friend that he wants to like see the best of this old man and he sees things that adults don't and the adults are wrong um, because this Blakey and innocence that children has have is able to redress the wrongs of uh, adults that are have been too long indoctrinated by a society that's caused them to be uncaring or something like that. You know, the the pure eyes of a child sees clearly. What we get instead is that uh, the angel, which this old man is referred to as regularly, was no less standoffish with the child who's a boy than with other mortals. But he tolerated the most ingenious infamies with the patience of a dog who had no illusions. And that line to me indicates that this child is really acting in the same way that he has grown up seeing his family and villagers treat the angel or the old man. And one thing I want to talk about in the discussion is this I don't know, rejection of Blakey and innocence as as child. And I'm thinking here of William Blake, who really did a lot of work in English literature to, I don't want to say fetishize, but maybe exemplify or uh, articulate his views on the fact that children are really born innocent and have a lot of innocence. Uh, I also need want to just double down on this fact that this family has kept this angel in the chicken coop for like five years. And only when he's very, very sick do they let him out. So it's it's not a great situation for this old old man with enormous wings. Well, th- those are kind of my comments on the end of the story. And we'll probably take up a lot of what I'm talking about in the discussion here. So let's get <laughs> right to it. Uh, this story is very strange. And before we talk about the details of the story, I think it's going to be worthwhile to talk about magical realism briefly as a kind of subgenre of the weird. This is a term that showed up actually in the same year that this story was published. Uh, This term first showed up in 1955. Magic realism was a term used to describe uh, art, that an art movement that was taking place. And then magical realism was a term used to describe uh, really what was a Spanish language, a Spanish literature, literary movement that includes Borges and, of course, Marquez and others. And magical realism describes the way that dreamlike or fantastic elements are treated in otherwise realistic stories. That 
It's to say that the magical elements are not commented on, but are treated with naturalism. And they're grounded in reality. The characters also seem to share our reality as well. It's not second world fantasy. It's not futuristic like sci-fi. So it combines these surreal elements with naturalistic descriptions. Uh, And given that description... I want to ask you what you think magical realism has in common with the weird as a genre, and then what differences you see, given the small sample size that we've read of magical realism, which is really this uh, Marquez story and the Borges story we read, uh, The Aleph. Right. That's a story that we did on on Patreon quite a long time ago. And in fact, we, we need to get back to doing some Borges. And hey, now we've got this great Marquez collection as well. So we'll, uh, we will be getting some more magical realism here on the podcast, I, I expect, especially now that we know that this is something people are really into, something that people want to want us to be doing here on the show. Thinking about the the parallels or the, the things they have in common, maybe the Venn diagram of uh, the, the weird, the strange, and magical realism. Uh, for me, I think one of the, the big contrasts or points of comparison with magical realism is actually urban fantasy, right? In the sense that both of them are telling a story that's got fantastical elements, but that is taking place in our world. But I think that the key here in in the way that you're describing magical realism, I think the key is that naturalism, right? In this story, there, yep, there's something weird going on. There are, there's a a person who's a tarantula. There are two people with wings uh, in this world and everyone treats that as if it's normal. Everyone treats that as if it is natural. Whereas urban fantasy has things like this too. Might have vampires, might have werewolves, have wizards, all all sorts of types of magical things or supernatural things, but no one necessarily treats that as normal. Usually that is a kind of secret world or uh, even if it's not secret, it's kind of another world. It's a sort of extra layer of the, the world that people think of as being weird or strange or being its own thing that has its own rules, that it's not integrated into their lives or the way that the world works, or at least the way that they think the world works. But I think in terms of genre comparisons, I think that that Venn diagram between magical realism and urban fantasy is, is quite close. But I think that that difference in tone there is what really sets them apart. Yeah, I, I really hadn't thought of urban fantasy as kind of the love child of the weird of weird fiction and uh, magical realism. And though you didn't say that explicitly, I think that's maybe what you're (laughs) hinting at a little bit. That does seem like a great, another great description of urban fantasy, uh, which we are constantly talking about on (laughs) Elder's Sign, uh, the origins (laughs) of urban fantasy. But what I see is really common in common between uh, magical realism and weird fiction and weird tales is that, the protagonists uh, and characters of all those stories encounter something strange as though it's part of the world that they didn't know about before. It's a new piece of knowledge or new information or something that is an event, something extraordinary happens to them. And in weird fiction, the cosmological or philosophical implication of that is really negative. It's that uh, there's just evil in the world or these things that we can't comprehend. And it has this really negative effect on the psychology of the protagonist or narrator or whomever, where magical realism, I think, does a lot more to use these elements of the weird or the strange or the uncanny 
to get us to think about our own world. It, it's trying to get us to encounter our world as a strange place and knock us out of our sense of maybe uh, the, that the status quo is always right or that we are unreflective about certain things in our world that they're trying to highlight, that, that the writers want us to reflect upon. And I think we see that going on in this story, that it's called a tale for children, but it doesn't really feel like one. And we talked a little bit about the way that the children we see in this story don't have this Blakeian innocence that we're used to in children's story. And also that this story seems to be critical of the kind of easy moralistic fable that we get in a lot of children's stories. So why do you think, Glenn, that this story is a tale for children, that Marquez has called this a tale for children? Yeah, this does not strike me as actually being a tale for children. I, you know, I've, I've been reading tales for children to to our baby, and and I would happily read this story to our, our our newborn son. But this does not really feel like it has much in common with the tales for children that I have been reading lately. So why call it that, right? I mean, that's that's the interesting question. And I think that you're right to point to that, and I, and I think that you're right that Marquez is getting us to think about the types of stories that we do tell to children. But I think also the types of stories that we tell about the world in general. I think I do think it's interesting that you are looking at the tarantula woman as a, a, another type of children's tale. I was really thinking of that more in terms of of religion and in terms of of different types of uh, theological systems, right? That there's the the priest, Father Gonzaga, who, you know, we pointed out maybe isn't the best educated priest, although, you know, it's hard to hard to say. Our information might not be all that accurate, or it's certainly not. We, we certainly don't get a whole lot of it. But he, but he seems at the very least to be nodding towards uh, some sort of complex theology, right? A, a theology that is grounded in uh, philosophy and rules and is interested in complexity and nuance. Whereas the carnival and the tarantula woman, to me, seem to represent a type of popular religion, a religion that is all about speaking to the emotions of people, uh, getting them to feel something without actually maybe explaining anything or helping them live necessarily con constructive or, or even good lives, which are things that are difficult to do, right? Advice about how to live a life that is genuinely good uh, is often hard advice to take, right? But there are other ways, and, and that's one of the things that differs maybe from what self-help gurus do, which is all about feel-good messaging, charging you to feel good for you know the hour or two hours that you're listening to uh, them speak or the few hours you're reading their book or whatever. That was really kind Kind of the contrast that I, I saw there. That's fascinating because I saw a different layer to the contrast that was about the willingness to embrace mystery and the, the kind of strangeness of the world around us, uh, the failures of knowledge, or maybe even the desire to use uh, forms of knowledge and categories and descriptions to explain everything instead of just allow for there to be mystery. Um, and that the, neither the tarantula woman nor the man with enormous wings is really given over to that sense of mystery for for the audience, for the people who are paying money to see them. Um, it seems to be a good enough explanation that the tarantula woman was, was turned into a tarantula woman for magic because she disobeyed her parents, which is a very simple thing. She's there to tell a moral of a story. 
But the man with enormous wings does represent mystery. And that liminal space that knowledge can't quite cover, you know, he can't ever explain himself. He doesn't have any language. He can't talk about where he came from. So that space of mystery creates a, a ground for everybody to just project things onto him. And that creates a real sense of discomfort, I think, for everybody in this story that they would rather replace with a simple, you know, I think self-help is a, is a good way to describe it, a simple sort of self-help message uh, rather than kind of soaking or just stewing in the mysteriousness of this event. I think that's a big part of the story. And what's great is that the only person in this story who really examines the very old man with enormous wings, at least on the medical level, finds the wings so innately human that his perception of being human is kind of flipped on its head and he begins to wonder why everybody doesn't have wings. And it's it's great. I think that's a great touch to this story to see that like actually this deeper engagement with uh, the mystery of this old man can change your understanding of what it means to be human, of what it means to be in the world if you can kind of examine the mystery a little bit more closely but people don't want that. And that's at least a level of commentary that I see in the story that children's stories are maybe too simple and, and maybe we can give children a little more credit uh, in understanding the complexity or mystery of the world and maybe giving children more mystery than fables is a worthwhile endeavor. The doctor's a real interesting character here, or maybe not himself as a character, but his presence in the story, because I would have thought that maybe when you've got a very old man with enormous wings who you just find in your courtyard on your way to drop some crabs back into the ocean because you think the smell of them is giving your new baby a fever, that you you might call a doctor <laughs> to check to check him out, right? Now, I understand why you might not. I think that, Gar that, that Garcia Marquez is envisioning a world here in which, well, you would have to pay the doctor cash in order to do that, and this is a poor family who can't afford to do that. So what then strikes me as really interesting is that the doctor doesn't ever seem to show up on his own, right? The priest shows up. The priest is interested in what's going on here, but the doctor doesn't show up on his own and offer to examine out of his own curiosity this this person. He does not come until he is summoned because the little boy has chicken pox and needs to be treated for that. It's the only time he comes. Who else doesn't come is like the school teachers, right? There is no one else in this village with any kind of, uh, I, I guess who's any member of the educated class who comes except for the priest. And that's really interesting. It, it absolutely is. And I also want to comment once again on I th the way that I think uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is critiquing um, the Western idea of children as purely innocent and that they see things different from adults. And rather, I think he's saying that children are really formed by adults and adult perceptions of the world and molded by adult interactions with the world around them. And as children are imitators of people they admire, that to be parents of children or to be in a village that, you know, where the whole village is maybe interacting with the child in some way, that children are not standing outside of that system of perception and interaction, but they're, ra they're rather formed by it. And so that should maybe 
as an adult reader of a story of a tale for children should cause us to reflect on what it means to be uh, witnessed by children and how we make the world that we live in as children witness our interactions with the world and then grow up and copy them if we don't reflect upon our behavior or uh, act the way we want to see the world be. One of the things that really struck me about the the relation that the the kid has with the very old man, right? I mean, they they seem to be buddies, right? This this little kid grows up with the just there's an old man with wings who lives in our chicken coop. That's normal for him. And he does, I think, to me, seem to perceive the world a little bit differently than adults do in the sense that he might be the only individual, the only member of the household that treat the very old man with enormous wings as if he is a person, right? To befriend him, right? His parents still seem to treat him like he's a chicken, like he's a real big chicken who has to live in the chicken coop with the rest of the chickens. Like they don't, they don't befriend him. They don't invite him into the house. They don't make him a member of the family, but it does seem that the, the little boy thinks of him as a member of his family. And it is certainly his, his companion, his playmate, his friend. Yeah. But I think that in the text we're seeing we're given that it's it's the way that like a dog is a member of a family. And so the kid grows up with this other animal in the barnyard as normal. That's more like him than the other animals, uh, but treats him maybe the way a young kid treats a, a dog who makes mistakes with the dog, who maybe hurts the dog, who uh, learns about relationships with animals through uh, mistakes of uh, mistreatment, maybe of said animal. Yeah, that's not really my experience of of kids with animals. I think you know when I tend to observe kids with with pets, right? Uh, and maybe I should distinguish pets from from animals here, or make it clear that pets is a subset of animals that I'm thinking of. That you know, kids grow up thinking that their pets are their siblings, or that the pets that their grandparents have, or that their aunts and uncles have, are like their cousins or their aunts and uncles or something like that, right? That little kids tend to think uh, that pets are people, that they are members of the family in the same way that, that human beings are. And, and that, I guess, was what I was seeing the little kid doing here. But maybe you and I just have different experiences of kids with uh, interacting with pets that we're, we're bringing to the story. Yeah, I, I, I also am not in my life seeing a lot of kids mistreat pets. That's not what I'm saying. I'm really just referring to the text here uh, about this line where it says the angel tolerated the most ingenious infamies with the patience of a dog who had no illusions. Uh, And that's in the paragraph about the way that the child plays with this angel. Uh, And so that to me indicates a, a kind of mistreatment on some level, whether it's uh, the, the way children are cruel to their siblings at times or whatever uh, that I think Marquez is commenting on this lack of innocence of children or saying that because he grew up in this environment where he sees his parents treat this uh, angel, this man a certain way, the way he's seen him being a sideshow attraction, he has certain ideas about the liberties he can take with the old man that maybe would not have been in place had he not witnessed this behavior. Well, to to be fair, uh, you know, our our baby is three months old now, and he has gotten really into our cats. He's very excited about watching them play and uh, or just really do anything that they might be up to. He's also really into grabbing anyone's hair. 
any anyone's hair, right? My wife's hair, my beard, because I don't actually have hair on my head anymore, but also the cat hair, even though he likes the cats. Uh, there's there's some grabbing going on, and we're going to get to a tail pulling phase eventually as well. So yeah, little kids with 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 their pets, right? Do go through that. Uh, we got just we got just one more question here uh, about what the man with enormous wings represents. I think you know we see in the story that he's primarily a, a container for other people's desires or wishes of him, but that doesn't stop them from treating him poorly. So what commentary is being made by the presence of this very old man with enormous, with enormous wings? What's he supposed to be to the reader of this story? Let me answer your question with a question of my own, Brandon. Is the very old man with enormous wings an angel? That's a that's a really tough question for me to answer because I don't actually trust the, you know, omniscient narrator of the story who almost exclusively exclusively refers to him as an angel, but maybe I should and and maybe he is an angel and there's a sense of disappointment of expectation and and reality here where people expect something to be one way and have to encounter the fact in the world that it's not. Uh and that makes them cruel. I'm not sure. I I don't think he's an angel. I think I think that the presence of this old man with very enormous wings is meant to represent a kind of encounter with mystery in the world. And I'm talking about a kind of uh, not like sleuthing or a need to figure out clues, but uh, a genuine encounter with something whose complexity of circumstance is too difficult to explain. I think if he if he actually is an angel, right? I mean, that's a totally different reading of the the story than I think the one that I I would lean towards. But if he is an angel, right, then this story has to be about the the way that uh, people are kind of blind to the gifts that they receive from heaven. I'm not quite sure that that's really what the moral of this story is. But if we are supposed to think that he's an angel, I think that probably has to be the moral. Yeah, I think that's a fair reading, and and it certainly falls into my reading of the story, which is that the you know as we talked about at the very end of the story, that he is a person who has brought nothing but good fortune to the family, but his presence reminds them that they didn't get it all just through hard work and in, ingenuity. It's almost a political commentary or an economic commentary, at least of the way people think when things work out for them, they did it themselves. And when they don't, it's somehow some mysterious circumstances. And it's kind of calling into mind this, I don't know, maybe confirmation bias or uh, willingness to ignore luck or the role of luck or extraordinary complexity in our good fortunes, uh, where we only point to uh, bad luck or misfortune or extraordinary complexity of life and, and the interaction and interplay of us in the world with things that don't work out. It's always us when they do. It's always the world when it doesn't. And I think that that is at least a part in what the man with enormous wings represents. I guess I, my reading of the story really focused a lot more on on his recovery, on his almost kind of miraculous recovery, as the, the doctor says he's got something wrong with his heart. His kidneys don't sound that well either. He looks real, real bad, like even worse than usual uh, this this winter time. But then come springtime, he's actually grown new feathers and is able to fly again. So I, I was more interested, maybe, or at least more focused on his recovery and what that might tell us about 
kind of the, the, the moral or the, the message of the, the story, especially if we're thinking about this in terms of being a fable, being a tale for children. And but but I had a hard time kind of identifying sort of what actually had happened that might have um, healed him, right? That would have led to his healing. Other than that, I guess he's just out of the chicken coop. But that's a thing that actually just kind of happens by accident. It just happens because the chicken coop collapses and they don't build him a new coop and he's just kind of wandering around. It's, it's not as if the adults in the family have embraced him and you know, made up a room for him or anything like that. So it was difficult for me to kind of see a, a real moral there as well. Again, I, I just have to refer to the fact that I think he he represents a, a mis- mystery of, of an, the enormous uh, complexity that we ignore typically about how things function in the world uh, of our willingness to look for simple explanations and solutions uh, that give us credit for things that we didn't do and how when we maybe are confronted with those things we'd rather not see them we'd rather not have them it's it's kind of like uh you know i don't know the obama like you didn't build that speech right <laughs> that that really irritated a lot of people um that this it's sort of an inconvenient confrontation with the fact that our good fortune is as mysterious as our bad fortune. Well, there's certainly a lot of mystery in this, though maybe not. Maybe somebody has cracked this story or has a wildly different interpretation than we have, and I'd love to hear that. Uh, you know, there's certainly comments on politics, on what we want our leaders to look like in this story, on our desire for simple stories to explain our world. A lot more going on in this story. I'm happy with our conversation today, though, Glenn. So <laughs> that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And I also want to say that you can find me guesting on another podcast. This is a podcast called Plot Points, which is a, a, a role-playing game podcast. I was honored to be on that show where we talked about the Robert E. Howard story, The Scarlet Citadel, which is the uh, the second published Conan the Barbarian story. Uh, we had a great time, and I would uh, encourage our listeners to check that out on uh, Plot Points. Yes, and for this story, head over to the Clay Temple forums or our new subreddit, which is Clay Temple Media, to let us know what you thought of our coverage of a very old man with enormous wings. And then one more thing before we go, which is just a reminder that our social media sharing contest is going on until the end of this month. If you're active online in a Marquez fan community or a magical realism group, we would love for you to let them know about this episode. We'd love to throw your name in the hat for a chance at your own special bonus episode for doing that. Uh, next time, we're going to be back with the first of three episodes about The Gunslinger by Stephen King. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.